So if there's one word that would sum up the Corinthian church, it would be the word chaotic. They were divided on all sorts of different levels, from the leadership down to the actual teachings themselves. They were practicing sin within the church, and there was church members actually happy about it. There was the roles differing within the church. Men were acting as women, and women were acting as men. They had communion, and people were being drunk, and others gluttonous. And then they came to the area of actually serving God. And if you could imagine, if the foundation is shaky, the building's going to fall apart. And that's exactly what the Corinthian church was all about. When it came to their actual service before the Lord, it was chaotic. It was a mess. It was charismatic chaos. They, some of them were prophesying in the name of the Lord that wasn't the Lord. Others were speaking in different languages, not to elevate God, but to elevate themselves. Others were uh, making themselves out to be more powerful and spiritual than they really were. And everybody was doing their own thing. So as you could imagine, a person walking in for the first time and seeing the whole group of people speaking and prophesying on behalf of God, giving all kinds of different messages. Messages, speaking in different languages, and nobody knows what really is going on. So the Apostle Paul begins to address these issues. Now we're moving away from our last topic. If you remember, what was the topic we spent three weeks going over? Communion and the Lord's Supper, and how to do that in a worthy way. Now we're going into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we have a new section. And it spans all the way through chapter 14. Now, just by way of review, I like to, every time we go to a new section, cover what we've already covered. Because if you're like me, you forget forgot what you ate yesterday or forgot what you did Friday or forgot what the teaching was last Sunday. And so the first six chapters, Paul is, is writing to the church to correct them. He's correcting them on division. And does anybody remember the other area he really came down hard on them? Sexual deviances, right? Sexual immorality. They were divided with leaders. And they were saying, I'm of Christ. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And as they elevated one leader, what did they inevitably do to others? Diminish them. And so you had one click over here saying, I'm this group. Another click over there saying, I'm that group. And you had all these little gangs, like it was a little prison within the Corinthian church. And they were all kind of infighting with one another. Then they all brought their human philosophies. Some people brought uh, Plato and Socrates and the Stoic philosophers, others false religion, others some teachings of the apostles' doctrine and some the other. And so everybody had their own belief system. And as you know, just like in politics or anything else, beliefs that are different from one another can drive a church completely apart. And so they were at their very heart disorganized in a dysfunctional family. On top of that, they had sexual immorality. In chapter 5, you had a man sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it's probably not his biological mother. It's more like his stepmom. But nonetheless, it was an evil thing. And the church, they didn't rebuke it. They actually celebrated it. Now, I can see the church saying, look how progressive and liberal we are. Look how welcoming and accepting of all lifestyles we are. Aren't we just amazing? And Paul says that's absolutely ridiculous. You rebuke sin, sexual immorality, exactly where it stands. 
And they also had homosexuality. They also had transgenderism within the, the body. They had men going out and taking temple prostitutes, both male and female. They also had women going out and worshiping the goddess Aphrodite's with their own body. So you had all this form of sexual immorality entrenched within the body of Christ. And Paul says, when I come to you, we are going to talk. In other words, wait till your dad gets home and we're going to actually iron things out. And so Paul is rebuking them. Then we get to chapter 7, and it goes through chapter 14, and that section is a different section. It deals with, anybody remember? It deals with exactly what uh, Paul and, or Paul, what Brian, Brian, you wish, Paul. I mean, Paul, whatever. It's doing what Kim and Brian are going to be doing when dealing with head coverings. It is a Q and A. A question and answer. So the Corinthians not only had issues within the body with morality and division, but they had questions and concerns because the apostles' doctrine and the word of God was so different from the world and culture that they were used to. And you know, nothing's changed. When you go and get indoctrinated at a university or college, and then you come and hear the word of God and where God stands on things, everything is completely different. And that was the Corinthian church. Next week, we're going to look at their background. We're going to look at actually what the Corinthians believed. And we're going to give a big backstory as to their theology and all the nonsense they brought into the church. And it was so different from what the Bible teaches. And so they had questions. And you remember topic number one. It was in chapter seven. And this is why we do the reviews. Remember the, the number one topic, the very first thing they said, Paul, 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 we have questions about. Anybody remember what that was? This is why we do the reviews. Marriage and singleness. Remember there were people in the church, some who elevated marriage, and primarily those were the Jews within the, the Christian church. They had become Christians and they brought their old Jewish mentality. And if you're from Africa, parts of Africa, the Middle East, and Greece, you know and you understand that marriage is a very, very, very big deal. And if you're not married, the culture looks at you and says, what is wrong with you? Something's not right with you. If you don't have a mate, then something must be really, really wrong with what's going on in your life. So people in the church elevated marriage. And when you elevate marriage, what do they do to the singles? Diminish them and says, you guys aren't even worthy of ministry. Now, Paul begins to correct that. Then you had another group of people, and they believed singleness was elevated, and if you were married, that was not so. Why? Because if you're appeasing the flesh and satisfying the flesh through sexual interactions with your mate, you're not being holy. Do you remember what institution adopted that? The Roman Catholic Church. That's why the priest and the nuns and the monks, they don't get married. They stay celibate or single. Why? Because they believe it to you to be more pious and holy that way. And so if you have the gift of singleness, Paul says, be single. If you don't get married, either way, chapter 7, glorify God right where he has you. Then verses 8 or chapters 8 through 10, meat offered to idols. Some people were going into the temples and they were sacrificing to these gods and they were purchasing the meat and they were eating it up. 
and other Christians within the body says, that's paganism, that's evil, that's wrong. We shouldn't be in that system. We shouldn't be eating that meat. No way. Others says, pass the salt. I'll eat that meat all day long. It's a ribeye at half off. I have no problems doing that at all. And that section dealt with the very specific area of the Christian life. Do you remember what that was? Man, Greg, you are on point, brother. Christian liberties. God has given us blacks and whites. He has said the do's and the don'ts. There are very concrete, clear-cut things in which we can and can't do. But then there's that gray area. There's that middle ground where the Bible doesn't necessarily touch on those matters. And in those things, God says, you are free. You are liberated to do as your heart, as your heart contents to do. However, here's the caveat. Don't stumble your brother. If meat sacrificed to idols is going to cause this person to be offended or that person to stumble and go back into that pagan idolatry, then you don't do it. If drinking alcohol is going to cause somebody to stumble, then when you're around them, forsake it. If gambling is going to cause somebody to go back to their addiction and get uh, into all kinds of debt, then it's best that you remove that from their life. Whatever it is that causes your brother to stumble, it's best that you no longer do it. You don't have liberty in such things. Then in chapter 11, men and women. There were women within Corinth who were shaving their heads. It was part of the women's liberation movement. They said, we want to be represented in every way, in an egalitarian way, before the culture and in the church. And they were men who were effeminate, who were growing their hair out long. And there were roles being with, reversed within the body of Christ. Paul corrects that and says, no, no, no. This is the theological, biological way in which men and women are to operate within the body of Christ. Then communion. Some people were coming in drunk, others gluttonous, and they were dishonoring the Lord's table. Now we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's a brand new section, starting at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now here's a new section, chapters 12, 13, and 14. And if you're an outliner or you like to kind of place things in a correct, you know, orderly manner in your mind, chapter 12 deals with the theology of spiritual gifts, and that's the spiritual foundation on which we build. Chapter 13 is the practical foundation. Why do we do it? There's one word. It starts with L and ends with of. We do it out of love. That is the practical foundation by which we minister our spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 14, it's the big what not to do. It's the spiritual abuses of our spiritual gifts. So chapter 12, the who, the what, the where, the why, the how, and the so what's to spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is why we do it out of love. And then chapter 14 is what not to do. And our example, again, is the Corinthian church. And so let's begin with uh, chapter 12. And we see four aspects or four different areas of spiritual gifts. And this is just kind of an introduction for today. 
We're going to look at the, the four aspects or four types of um, dealings when it comes to spiritual gifts. And there's four terms in the first six verses, all dealing with spiritual gifts, but they're completely different terms. And so with that, we can get four ground rules so that we're not crazy when it comes to the spiritual gifts. And the very first aspect or word that describes this giftedness from the Lord is there in verse one. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Now in your Bible, if you have it open, look at the word gifts and you might see something that is a little unique. It's in italics. So when the Bible translators wrote words in italics, what is that telling you and I? That it's not even in the original manuscript. That they actually added this word into the Bible so that we can potentially have a better understanding as to what is actually taking place. So this word gift is not actually there. However, it does refer to spiritual gifts. If you go to chapter 14 and verse 1. Pursue love yet desire earnestly, and here we have the exact same Greek word, spiritual, with that word italics, gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So we see in that context that it's specifically referring to spiritual gifts, even though that idea of gifts is not in there. So the first aspect of spiritual gifts, or the first rule we can draw out, is from this word, pneumatikos, and that's the word in verse 1. Pneuma means air or wind or breath. So if you have pneumatic tools, they're, how are they driven? With air pressure, right? If you have pneumonia, it's hard to breathe, right? This word pneuma means spirit. And tikos, that last part, always means to be characterized by or subject to or things of. So in verse 1, Paul is saying, now concerning things of the Spirit, or things according to the character of the Spirit. And here we can draw from that our very first rule, meaning spiritual gifts must always be in like-mindedness to the one who gave the gift. Now, who gave us spiritual gifts? The Holy Spirit, God in the person of the Holy Spirit. He came into us and then equipped us for the work of the ministry. Pneumatikos is telling us that when we operate in the power of the Holy Spirit and exercise our gifts, it is always in accordance to the mind of the Spirit or the character of God. Why do I say that? Well, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware. And the word unaware is the Greek word agnostic, which means to not know. So when people say, hey, I'm an agnostic and they're so proud about it, what they're saying is, I have no idea what's really going on. The Latin is even better. It means imbocilia. We get imbecile. So when people say, I'm agnostic and they're so proud of it, they're saying, I'm an imbecile. I have no clue what in the world truth really is. Paul is writing and he's saying, when it comes to spiritual gifts, I'm going to spend chapters 12, 13, and 14 to make sure that you know 
what's going on and you're not dumb or unaware or the translation ignorance in these matters. Pneumaticos means we operate in the character of the spirit. Now, if there's one area, I think, in the church where, and not just this church, universal church, where we are most ignorant, it's pneumatology. Pneuma is what? Spirit. Ontology is? So the pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. I think the church universal is ignorant when it comes to how the Spirit works, the function of the Spirit, who the Spirit is, and then the dispersing of spiritual gifts. I don't think many of us have a very sound understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. You have right-wing, uber, uber, ultra-dox churches. Let's say like Greek Orthodox or Syrian Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. Then on the left, you have the charismatic, Pentecostal, apostolic churches. And you have everyone in the middle. And everybody sees and views and operates in the Holy Spirit in a much different way. Which is unfortunate because there's one spirit given to one body God's Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to operate in the characteristic of the Spirit? In other words, can you see Jesus doing these things? So some churches, they have people rolling around on the ground, on all fours, barking like a dog and howling like a wolf, crowing like a rooster, flopping around on the floor like a fish, slamming their feet. They have poisonous snakes on the altar. They're slamming and stomping, and the louder they scream, the more powerful the Spirit is upon them. They're slain in the Spirit and all the rest. The only example of being slain in the Spirit is Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira was murdered by the Holy Spirit for lying. So when it comes to pneumaticos or operating in the Spirit, rule number one is, does Jesus work through the Spirit in this way? Or can I see God operating in this manner? So when we exercise our spiritual gifts, is it actually biblical? Or am I doing something of another spirit? Doing something that is actually of my own flesh or maybe even something of another possession? Pneumatikos is we always exercise our gifts in accordance to the will and the mind of God. For example, one gift, and we're going to look at the list over the next couple of weeks, but one spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives is the gift of generosity. Some people have this amazing, unique gift of having, being able to give above and beyond. They're willing to not eat a meal so that that person can eat. They'll take the clothes off their, their back so another stranger can be warm. These people have a unique Holy Spirit unction to be able to give out and of abundance even to the point that it hurts them. Now, when you look at the person of God, when you look at the being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you see from Gen Genesis on that he is a benevolent God. For example, in chapter 1, what does God do? He says, let there be. So God creates this incredible universe. And then immediately, what does God do? He creates man, and then what does he do with all of his creation? 
he gives it right on over to mankind and says, here it is. You rule over it. How incredibly generous is that? And then Adam, he's lacking. And what does God do? He gives them woman. And now there's a companionship. There's a relationship. And we look at our lives and we see God has given us salvation. God has given us a spirit. He's given us amazing kids. He's given us friends. He's given us a church family. He's given us a family. He's given us an opportunity to make money. He's given us uh, the ability to make money and then actually receive that money. We look at God and we see this benevolence throughout his character. Now, when the Holy Spirit gives the gift of giving, how do you think the church or the individual Christian should function in that gift? Do you think they would be selfish or do you think they would be generous? That's what pneumaticos means. Because of God's character and the gift that he's given you, it must always align with who he is. And if it doesn't align, something is off. So you see in Romans chapter 15, and we have an example of this. Romans 15, verse 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia, these are regions of Greece, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles shared in in their spiritual things, here's our word pneumaticos, for if they shared in the things that are according to the Spirit, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So you have a church in Greece who has never, ever, ever, ever met anybody from the church at Jerusalem. They don't know anybody over there. They don't know what's going on over there. But there's a severe famine. The saints in Jerusalem are starving to death. And so those that have the gift of giving, they step up and they exercise those gifts. And you see it aligns with the will of God. And they actually meet the needs of the people. That's pneumaticos in work. That is working in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Let me show you an example of what to not do. Flip over to Acts chapter 8. And this is an example of trying to operate with the guise of being holy or in the power of God when your heart is not even in it. Here's the exact opposite of working within the character or likeness of the Spirit. Acts chapter 8 and verse 9. There was a man named Simon who was formerly practicing magic. Now, that doesn't mean pulling a rabbit out of a hat. That means like the dark arts. They were actually doing satanic practices. In the city, an astonishing people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were given attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he, for a long time, had astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed." 
So you have a guy who is practicing and, and operating under the power of Satan. He was demonically possessed. He was doing miracles on that behalf. People were saying, this man is a great power from God. And we see this throughout the church. Men who are not possessed with God's spirit, but possessed with other spirits, who appear to be like they are the great power of God, that they are representing God the right way, and they're not at all. Their God is the appetite of their own belly, and they're in it for sordid gain. These are the guys that say, oh, trust God and give me all of your money, and you'll be able to see God work mightily in your life. These are the guys that their congregations are starving, living paycheck to paycheck, and they're asking the church for a new uh, stream jetliner. These are the guys that say health, wealth, and prosperity to you, but first you must prove it by grabbing faith and sending me every single penny that you have. It's the same kind of spirit, and we see it throughout the church. Men who misrepresent God, who appear like they're operating under the power of God, but their actions speak otherwise. So this man, Simon, he was doing just that. He then believed in the gospel. And now verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed on them through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this man is trying to operate under the Spirit, but is his heart right with God? He's breaking rule number one in our text. His will, his desire, and what he is doing is not in congruence with who God is and who the Holy Spirit is. So look at what Peter responds, verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon you. So the church at Rome, they gave us a good example operating in the character of the spirit. This guy, Simon, gave us a good example of what not to do when trying to operate under the power of the Holy Spirit. So rule number one, if we are exercising our spiritual gifts, who must it align with? Because he is the source, he is the spirit by which we are from. So it's called being cut from the same cloth or the apple doesn't roll far from the tree. If we are born of God, then who are we to act like? 
God. If the Holy Spirit is operating in us, then who is it we are to be like? The Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ. Now, let's go to verse 4. And we get the second aspect or the second different um, word that describes the giftings of the Holy Spirit. And it's found in verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Now, this word gift is not pneumaticus. It's the Greek word charismatum. We get our English word charismatic. So what does it mean if someone is charismatic? Charming. What else? If someone is charismatic, they have a big personality. They're, they're drawing the limelight. They're, they're taking everybody's breath out of the room. They're able to just have your focus. They just have that unction, right? There's something about them that everybody is drawn to. They're charismatic. And so because of that word and our English definition, we have a whole church, denominations of people who have a charismatic movement. And so the louder the yell, the louder they stomp, the more animated they are, the more powerful the Holy Spirit is working in them. Char charisma, which is a Greek word, charis, does not mean loud or rambunctious or gravitating. Anybody know what charis means? It's the Greek word grace. So we hear char charisma and we think, okay, we have to be charming. We have to seize the day and take the room. God is saying, no, these are grace gifts. Charisma simply means operating under grace. And so the second aspect of the Holy Spirit working through us is realizing that God graciously gave us gifts. Now, when it comes to salvation, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is but the free gift, and the word free gift is the Greek word charisma. The charisma of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see a grace gift in salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. Now turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. God not only saves us because of these, his gracious gift, but he also empowers us through the Holy Spirit to work grace gifts. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11. As to each one has received a special gift. Now, what do you think that word special gift in Greek is? We just said it charisma. That's our word that Paul uses in our text. As each one has received charisma. Who did we receive charisma from? From God who is gracious. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold, what? Grace of God. Whoever speaks, is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory 
and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see God is gracious. And what does he uh, deploy and give to each church member? Charisma or grace gifts. So let's break that down. What do we know about grace? It's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor from God. So if I go to work and I work 40 hours and the employer gives me a paycheck, is that grace? Why? I worked for it. Suppose I don't go to work and the employer gives me the same check. Unmerited, undeserved favor. That's grace. We don't earn it. When it comes to spiritual gifts, there is nothing you and I can do, just like salvation, that earns us our spot or earns us specific gifts. God graciously and sovereignly gives to those as he deems fit. Now, what do we know about gifts? Let's go back to Christmas. Now, if Christmas is when you were a kid was too many generations ago, just think of your grandchildren or your nieces and nephews around the table, around the Christmas tree. One thing we know about Christmas gifts or gifts in general is they are all different depending on the recipient. Would you agree with that? For example, if we all had a Christmas gift under a tree and I go and I open my gift first and it's a black spatula. And then Ed goes and he opens his gift and it's a black spatula. And Rosemary goes and opens her gift and it's a black spatula. And we all open the gift and it's the same exact gift. How boring would that be? Right? Gifts differ. And they differ based on the recipient. For example, if you gave my wife a curling iron, she'd probably be really happy with you. If you gave me the curling iron for Christmas, it would be on eBay or offer up in a New York minute, right? Gifts are all different and they are all determined based on the recipient. They are ever changing or all different based upon who you are and the call of God on your life. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 through 8, gives us more insight into these grace gifts. Since we have gifts, what do you think the Greek word for gifts are? Charisma, there you go. Since we have charisma that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving or in who teaches his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberty, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness." Everybody has differing gifts from one another. Now, we may share in some similar gift things, but we are all different. That's one thing we know about gifts, is they are different depending on the recipient. What else do we know about spiritual gifts, or just gifts in general? They come in all shapes and sizes, right? How boring would it be if every, every Christmas tree had the exact same wrapping with the exact same bow and the exact same shape and size? 
but we know some are small packages, some are really big packages, some are elaborate wrapping, some are okay Amazon box wrapping. They all come in different shapes and different sizes. Same with spiritual gifts. We all have different gifts, but those gifts that we do share. So suppose here at Journey, we have five teachers, five people who are gifted in the area of teaching. Just because we all share in that gift doesn't mean we excel in the same way. There's different capacities, different abilities, and even within teaching, some areas of teaching may be stronger, some areas of delivering the teaching may be stronger. We are all different based upon what God wills it to be. So we have different gifts given by God, these grace gifts, and different varying abilities of those gifts. What else do we know about gifts? We don't always get what we want. We may have asked mom for a Red Ryder BB gun, and she says, no, you're going to shoot your eye out, kid. And so we don't get it. We get socks instead. We may have asked hubby for a diamond ring, and we get an iron for Christmas. We may have asked, uh, you know, the wife to get a, a new car, and next thing you know, she gives us an Uber pass, right? We don't always get what we want or expect. It's the same with spiritual gifts. If you flip over to four, chapter 14 and verse 1 again, it says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly pneumatico spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So here we see that we are all given gifts, and we can ask, and we can earnestly desire of God to receive other gifts. However, it doesn't necessarily mean he will give it. And why I say that is because in school and then even in ministry, I've noticed that there are some men who really want to be a pastor and they really want to be the teaching pastor and they want to be up front as if like, you know, this is some magical dream job or something, right? They're like, I want to be that guy. And so they're godly, they're holy, they have the Holy Spirit in them, they're moral, they're, they're gifted in certain areas, but they're not gifted in the right areas, Maybe God hasn't given them the gift of prophecy or teaching or words of encouragement or exhortation or leadership. And so they're not cut out for that position, but they force it. They try to force it. And so you see them trying to preach and it's like, you just want to rip your, your hair out. You know, it's like, I, I see your, your passion, brother, but, but you ain't got it. You know, you, you, you just don't have it. Not everybody that throws a baseball is going to go to the major leagues right? Some people have it and some people just don't. In the body of Christ, if God created you to be a hand, don't try to be the foot. Some people do a handstand. They say, see, I can do it. But you can only do it for so long because the hand was not created to be the foot. And ultimately, you fall flat on your face. So when it comes to these grace gifts, the rule is understand we all get some gift or gifts from God. They vary with the gift and they vary with the ability and talent of the gift. But not everybody gets everything and not everybody gets what they want. So the rule is when it comes to spiritual giftedness, stay in your lane. Don't try to be someone you're not. And just love what God has given you and excel what, where your heart desires and you will go far. 
Now let's look at number three. Rule number three is there in verse five. And there are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. Here we have another word that describes the working of the Holy Spirit through our lives. And it's the word ministries. Now this is the Greek word diakonos. Anybody know what English word we get from that? Diakon. We get service, but within the church there are titles. There you go. Deacon or deaconess. Diakonos, we get deacon or deaconess, which literally means minister. Minister. We minister before the Lord and we minister to other people. Now, this is fascinating because do you agree that every Christian has at least one spiritual gift? If you say yes, then you are now agreeing that you are a minister. Period. We think we have to go to school to be a minister. We have to be ordained to be a minister. Something supernatural has to take place uh, at the pulpit or somewhere along our Christian journey for us to know that we are ministers. The reality is, is if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have the, the grace gifts within you. And if you have grace gifts, you are required to use them. Here's another thing we know about gifts, if you can recall. You're expected to share them. I remember mom would be like, now go share with your sister. Go share with your cousin. Let so-and-so ride your bike. And I would say, no, 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 my, their name wasn't on that gift. My name was on that gift. It's mine. We were expected to share. You give a gift, that gift is to be passed around. It's the same with God's gifts to you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. And then those gifts are meant to be used for service or ministry. You then become the diakonos, the ministers of God. And here's what we know about the ministry. Number one, it is a lot of work. I hate to burst your bubble, but Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not like going and watching uh, tennis or golf or going on the sidelines of a football game and cheering your favorite team on. Christianity is being in the trenches with one another in battle. It's being at war with one another. It's working diligently, knee-deep in the muck. That is ministry, and guess what? Every Christian is called to that service. Every Christian is a minister of Jesus Christ and the church. Now that's crazy because in the Orthodox, it's the clergy that does all that and the, the church is just there for the ride. It's like a school bus. The, the people at the front are driving the bus and everybody's just going for the ride, which is nutty. But the reality is, is that's not the truth. Every one of us has a diakonos, a ministry, and ministry is hard work. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to see a guy named Stephanus and most likely his wife and his children. And you're going to see them as deacons and deaconesses in the church at Corinth and everything that it requires. These guys are the blueprint for how to do ministry the correct way. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, 
that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry. What's that Greek word ministry? Diakonos, the same word that Paul uses in our text, to the saints. Now, who are the saints? You. You are the saints. The word devoted that Paul uses there means to restructure and reorder your life. Now, where was Stephanus' household from? Achaia. Where are they at now in chapter 16? Who is Paul writing to? To the Corinthians. Stephanus and his household reordered their life in devotion by leaving that region, coming to Corinth, and serving as ministers to the saints at Corinth. Now look at what that service entails. Verse 16, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. The work means to assist or collaborate. You see, Stephanus and his household, they were deacons and deaconesses, which means they weren't the pastors. They weren't Paul. They weren't Timothy. They weren't Apollos. They were just underneath them in church rank, but they were there collaborating and assisting for labors. The word labor means to get under a heavy weight. They left their old life, their home, they came to Corinth to collaborate with the church leaders to then bear the weight of the Corinthian church. Now look at verse 17. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acacius because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. So they came and they first supplied, which means to see a need in the church and meet the need in the church. And then in verse 18, they refreshed my spirit. Refreshment means to take someone's burden and carry it. You remember Stephanus and his household, they were under toil or they were under a weight. Where did the weight come from? They saw the need in Corinth and they saw people under distress and they went and helped them. In other words, these people left everything to come to a church, see needs, and then actually be under their burden so that the church at Corinth can have refreshment. That is what it means to serve. It's to die to yourself, to die to your own will and need for the betterment of your brothers and sisters. These people took on labor so that the Corinthians could be refreshed. Now, here's what's amazing. is 2,000 years later, we're talking about this man and his family. Do you think that five years or 10 years or two years or 20 years of labor was worth it? Now that 2,000 years later, we're talking about their faithfulness. And imagine what God is going to do for them and how much he's going to bless them. See, Christians in America, we think, how can the church serve me? When in reality, it should be, how am I to serve the church? 
That's the true test. That's the way we ought to change our minds. Another thing about this diakonos or this service, number two and three, we are all called to serve and we are all required to fulfill our ministry. Look at Colossians 4.17. Colossians 4.17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in whom? The Lord, that you may fulfill it. Where did Archippus get his ministry from? Where did he get his calling from? What about the apostles? Remember Peter? They're over there fishing and Jesus passes by and what does he say? Come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. What about Paul the apostle? Saul is going up to Syria, going to handle some business. And what happens? He's blinded by the glory of Christ, and Christ says, you are my chosen vessel. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. You're going to suffer for me, but you're going to do great things for me. Who called all those men and put them into the ministry? Who do you think calls you to the ministry? Every single one of you who have the Holy Spirit has a gift or gifts. And if you have a gift or gifts, Jesus himself has called you to fulfill that ministry. Every one of us has a calling, and every one of us is required to fulfill it. This guy, Archippus, he was called by Paul, take heed, fulfill your ministry. Now go to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. But you be sober in all things, Endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. And what's the last command? Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. God has specifically called you, Timothy, to a ministry. Get about the business and fulfill it. Remember the parable of the talents. There was a, a, a master and he gave to his slaves one five talents, one two talents, and one one talent. And he went on a journey, and he says, I want you to bring back interest. Notice those are varying gifts. Not everybody had the same gift. Not everybody had the same level of giftedness. But they all were given gifts, and they were all expected to produce something. The, the two that produced it, what did Jesus say? Well done, good and faithful servants. You know what service, servants do? They serve. They minister. The one who squandered his gift, what did Jesus say? You wicked and lazy servant. Wicked and lazy good and faithful. That's the difference between those who actually administer their gifts and those who squander their gifts. So we go now and we ask the question, why? Why does God call us to minister according to his likeness? Why does God give us these grace gifts? Why does God empower us all in different ways? And why does God call us to be ministers of the gospel and to serve one another? Why? Like, what's the purpose of this whole thing? What's the big picture? 
See, we, we went through the minutia. Now we go big picture. Why, why is Paul calling us to do these things? Why does the Bible empower us and tell us we have these skill sets and these abilities? What is the purpose of it all? Okay. Wait. Okay, what was it? To make disciples. So through evangelism. What about within the body of the, of the church itself? To serve. What's the purpose of serving? It's not just to meet those temporal needs. It's a bigger picture. Why? Why do I serve? Why, why am I up here today teaching? Why did uh, Richard come and, and sing? Why is Denisa doing the slides right now? Why is John and Maria getting here early and making sure that we have a hospitality on point? Why? why? What, what's the purpose of it all? To strengthen the body for what? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7 and 8. And here's the why to it all. But to each one of us, grace. Remember what that word is? Charisma was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. And what did he do? And he gave gifts to men. Now verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. Why? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? And what are the saints to do? For the work of Service. Remember that word, diakonos. Why did God give faithful men to train up the body of Christ so that you, the saints, would minister to one another? Now look at the end goal. We're ministering for what end? For what purpose? To the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. What is the purpose of serving and using our spiritual gifts and dying to ourselves for the sake of each other. To build up the body until we become like whom? Jesus. Until we corporately and individually are living and acting like the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now follow me. This is why it's important to serve. Why it's paramount. When Christ came, you remember he was baptized. And he came out of the water. And then what happened? The Holy Spirit likened to a dove fell upon him. And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And at that point, boom, Christ's diakonos, his ministry immediately kicks off. He's driven into the desert and then he starts doing miracles and all of these different things. He's expressing, listen, every single gift that the Holy Spirit gives to the church was fully embodied in the person of Christ. Meaning Christ, did he have the gift of teaching? 
Now, he had every gift, every variety, but remember we talked about there's differing degrees. Did Christ have the best of the best? So if you think of a video game, some, you know, the, the little character you make, some, their power is like 80 and the speed is like 60 and IQ is like 92. All of us are different, having different levels. Christ had every single attribute maxed out to 100. So when it came to giving, he gave his life and he gave his time. When it came to the works of miracles, did Christ not perform miracle upon miracle upon miracle? When it came to teaching and preaching, he was the very best. In every way, he had every attribute and gift of the Holy Spirit, and it was fully maxed out. Then Christ is crucified, buried, he ascends to heaven, and that's Acts chapter 1. And then what happens in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit comes down and he gives gifts to men. Now think of a church. I'm gifted in certain areas and I'm very weak in other areas. We all have different gifts and we all have levels of gifts. If Chris is the only one serving, and I'm not saying that's the case, but if Chris is the only one serving, does the body represent Christ perfectly? Because there are areas where I'm insufficient and I can't do and I'm not equipped to do. So if Chris is the only one doing it, the body is not like the head, Jesus Christ. So if five people are gifted in certain areas and they begin to exercise their gifts, are we more and more like Jesus Christ? So imagine now everybody, imagine every single journey member and all the different gifts that we possess begin to enable them. Now we are having or manifesting Christ here on earth within this congregation. In other words, it's like having the living, breathing, resurrected Christ within our body. And that personally, physically, emotionally, spiritually changes everything. What happens, though, the negative side, when people don't operate in their giftedness? That manifestation of Christ, the power of Christ, the light of Christ, that living water doesn't flow like it should. And so you have a dry, dead, aging church where the 5% do the 100%. And we do not operate as the body ought to operate. So what happens when I'm not serving in my spiritual gift? Suppose I say, you know what, guys, I'm not going to preach anymore. I then begin to rob you. I begin to rob you from your experience with God. And when you don't serve and operate in your gifts, you are robbing me of that experience with the living Lord. Does that make sense? Do you see now how profound it is to serve? It's not just, you know, putting in your time on Sunday morning. It's far deeper, far more profound than that. We are living the, the embodiment of Christ through his spirit as we seek to honor him. It's vitally important that we serve. Now we'll look at the fourth term very quickly. And that's there in verse six. So rule number one, when we operate under spiritual gifts, we are to doing, 
according to the will and character of God. Number two, we all have gifts. They all differ in variety and in impact. And we are called then in rule number three to use our gifts for the building up of the body and the glory of God. Here's number four. There are a variety of effects. It's the Greek word energema. We get energy. But the same God who works all things and all persons. Here's the fourth area or aspect of God's Holy Spirit working in us. Energy. Power. It actually means effectual. So you might have a Christian who's lazy and doesn't want to serve, and that's diakonos. They don't want to be the minister. They don't want to serve other people. They don't want to be like Stephanus and reorder their life for the betterment of someone else. Then there's another group who says, I'm too scared. I'm too nervous. I don't want to mess things up. I, I, I don't really know where God's called me. I, I don't really know what he's empowered me with. I, I'm just unsure of myself. This is the fourth term. God's power or his giftedness will meet its effectual end. In other words, just get to business, do what you feel God is calling you to do, and the results will follow. It's that whole, all, that whole Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. It's that effectual call or that effectual action. God will use your talents and he'll use your abilities and he'll use your faith and he'll use your time and he'll use your resources to push his will forward. You don't have to worry about being the next Billy Graham. You don't have to worry about being the next uh, Phil Wickham. You don't have to worry about being some great Christian the uh, theologist. All you have to worry about is being faithful and exercising the gift God has called you to do. And his energy will push his will forward. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. We'll get into communion. And That is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.